So we are in the book of Philippians chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 5. Uh, before we do that, I just want to give kind of one more shot at the first four verses. Were there any other additional questions or comments? Those first four. I thought we covered them fairly thoroughly. But. Cool. So let's jump into 5 through 11. And... I'm sorry, this slide is still just a, yeah, just a kind of uh, reminder of the method that Paul uses throughout this letter in providing examples of individuals, including himself, um, to teach uh, the points that he's trying to get across. So he's already used himself once in verse uh, 12 through 26 of chapter 1, and now he's doing it here starting in verse 5 of chapter 2 with Jesus. Um, if we could, um, can we have someone read this section for us again? Verse 5 through 11. <coughs> Go for it, Sarah. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, thank you. And just as a way of reminder... Um, I'd like us to get through verse 18 tonight. So maybe that'll direct uh, our discussion tonight. Um, so that when things get really complex and convoluted and I don't have any answers, we'll just be like, well, time to move on, verse, uh, verse 12. So so let's talk about this, because I'll be honest, in, in my studying about this, uh, there's quite a bit made of these first few verses uh, especially when it comes to that particular phrase, when Jesus chose to empty himself or to make himself nothing. Um, before we get to that specific phrase and that specific question, Paul is wanting his readers to have this attitude, this mind in them, because it existed perfectly in Christ. And this mind is the things that, that he's been talking about prior in this chapter and even at the end of chapter 1. Um, what what's he been talking about the last few verses? What's he wanting the the church here to achieve? Unity. Unity. And there's a certain way to go about doing that, and there are certain things that are going to hinder or completely destroy that unity. Things like selfish ambition or rivalry, conceit. Um, when when we start putting ourselves above another, we are not going to achieve this kind of unity. And so he's saying, I, I want you to have this attitude, this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So let's talk about what was that mind? What was that attitude that Christ had? It says in verse 6, uh, the ESV says that who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, what are some other translations of that? Sarah's yours was slightly different. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be. Okay, very similar. Do we have 
different ones. I know the New King James is different. Anyone rocking the King James in here? No. Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal. Yeah. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The NIV says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Aha. Yeah, so the NIV does something different with both of these. Uh, Just about every translation does this uh, form of God. But I do like like what the NIV does here, um, at least in this verse, the nature of God. Um, This commentary that I read said that that word um, that we translate form is apparently kind of difficult to translate. There's not a, a perfect equivalent. When we use the word form, we are normally describing the shape of something, right? Um, but the ancient Greek word here did not really have the idea that, that Jesus had the shape of God. Um, it's more of an idea of, of mode or essence or nature. Um, it is the essential nature of God without implying a physical shape or image. And, and we understand that. I don't think anyone would read this and say, okay, when Jesus came down and he was someone whose physical form was nothing to be desired, that he looked exactly like God looked. He had the form of God that we don't, we don't normally have trouble with that. It, it was that he had the same nature. Um, so what does this mean? Because we need we need to kind of answer this question before we can we can talk about how he then emptied himself. So what does it mean that he had the form of God? He was God. He was God. Okay. He had all the, all the same attributes that God has in terms of love and mercy and justice and being all powerful and, and all of those omnis. Okay. So all of that was still part of him or was him right I was going to add that we're we're made in his image but we're not perfect in this case there's an image that is and if you wanted a sacrificial atonement to cover I think it's interesting that he would come down and um, become a man that gets to pouring out where you're probably about to go. Yeah. Yeah, because if God could have simply come down in God's right. power and form and allow himself to be crucified, and I don't know exactly how you could do that to an undying God, he would have done it. Right? right? But he had to become like one of us. He had to uh, bear the same form and experience pain, which is not something that God... The Father could do in in His form. But there is an idea here that Jesus shared with God this nature of God, this essence of God. Because without firmly understanding that, the rest of this section doesn't make any sense. Right? So there are religions, uh, um, factions, I would say, uh, Jehovah's Witness being one, that don't believe that Jesus was Himself divine. They believe that Jesus was, I believe, if I've got this right, Michael the archangel, or at least a, a, a well-established angel, and he came 
And so he wasn't God, but he was a spiritual being, and then he sacrificed himself for us. And, and this whole section makes no sense if that's what it was, because that was, a no, that, that was not God sacrificing anything. That was God commissioning some spiritual being, now go and do this thing. And that, that means nothing for us. But if it is that this was God himself, this was, this was a form of God, uh, part of the Godhead, that then became as one of us to sacrifice, uh, then it means everything. Then it means something far more powerful. How do we establish, because we've made some pretty bold claims about Jesus based on this one verse. What are some verses, some passages that we would use if you encountered someone who said, look, Jesus was not actually God. Um, I recently encountered someone who said that Jesus never even claimed anything like that. Jesus never said that he was God. What What would we say to that? What are some passages that we can go? Well, Colossians 2.9 is pretty clear. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's New American Standard. Yeah. Colossians 8, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 2, uh, 8, 9, and 10, really, that, that whole section, right? What are some others? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right. That whole section, in fact, a, a lot uh, of clarity is given in the Gospel of John. Um, there are passages... Um, in John eight fifty eight, and then again in John 10, starting in verse 30, where Jesus makes these comments about himself, and the Jews respond by trying to kill him. They're ready to stone him, because what he has just said, they understand him to be saying that he is God. Right. In fact, in John 10, um, let's actually turn there. In John 10, verses 30 through 31... Jesus said that I and the Father are one. And this is you know, the end of a long section of his. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus said, Whoa, 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 whoa. Clearly there's been some misunderstanding here. I never said anything like that. You know, let me clarify, because I understand that would be terrible. No, he goes on to say, in, in a very Jesus kind of way, um, that is what he was saying. Um, the, a similar thing, again, happens back in John 8. When Thomas sees the resurrected Christ in John 20, he refers to Jesus as my Lord and my God. And for a Jew to say that about a human being in a room full of other Jews, surely if he were mistaken about that, someone would have stepped up and said, whoa, Thomas, you have got this wrong. But instead, he falls down and worships Jesus and no one stops him. Not even Jesus. What about some of the other inspired writers in the New Testament. We mentioned uh, Paul obviously says this in Colossians 2. 
Can you think of any other passages? Luke. So I'd like to be weird because a lot of times when you go in there, you bring up some of these things. Oh well, we have to talk about the you know John. They'll talk about they've got some sort of argument. It's a mess, but they'll have something. But like Jude five, it says that Jesus having saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Jesus having saved the people out of the world. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty weird, right? If you try to fit it into their context, how does that make any sense? Right. Well, that's a good one. I hadn't had that one. Um, yeah, it gets to the point in the New Testament where those those two figures, those two personalities, beings, however you want, are started to use interchangeably. And so you've either got a whole bunch of Jews who should know better that are basically saying um, heresy or some something has, has been made clear to them and, and they are revealing this to us. Uh, Titus, in, in that letter in Titus 2, he refers to Jesus as both our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews uh, chapter 1 and those first few verses uh, notably, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So um, I probably should have brought those up earlier. Those at least were, were a handful of the ones that I found. Uh, this is an important point to make and notes for us to take because you are going to encounter people that are going to say, look, Jesus was just a very solid, very moral teacher um, he, you know, he sacrificed himself for us and that, you know, that was an incredible thing, but the scriptures doesn't, don't teach that, that he was God. He never said anything like that. That's not, that's not true. Um, the stoning account is pretty powerful because the crime in and of itself that they're accusing him of is a valuable conversation tool because it, it's a testimony of the blasphemy many it's an offering of proof that he actually made this claim and it wouldn't have been a claim. Right. Right. Um, yeah, a, f- a few other passages, but we don't, won't turn to them. But in Luke 4 and in Matthew 14, um, Jesus is talking to Satan, saying you're only supposed to worship God, Jehovah, and yet he on multiple occasions allows people to offer worship to him. Um he did it in somewhat subtle ways too when he healed the uh, paralyzed man uh, only God can they were saying right. only God can forgive sins right and so and he, he does right and so with that in mind knowing that that, God, that Jesus is the the exact imprint of God's nature, the the radiance of the glory of God, he was willing to set aside a part of himself, to empty himself, so that he could accomplish what God had given him to do. What does this mean? How did he empty himself? How did he um, make himself nothing? I think that King James says, uh, make himself of no reputation. What does this mean? What does this not mean? So the passage that I felt that came to mind in the the distance traveled here is in John 13, um, before he washes the disciples' feet. Mm-hmm. It says um, in verse 2, the evening meal was 
in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up after the meal and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. So there you see kind of a microcosm of he has all authority. So he is sovereign. And he's washing, he's the becoming a slave. Right. Right. And so for someone to... Um, honestly, I like the King James Version. And I think it actually removes some of the confusion that has arisen from that that first translation. He made himself of no reputation. He was worthy of every kind of glory and honor and praise that we could give him. And yet, he, he basically said, I'm willing to be a nobody for a time. Uh, the scriptures say that there wasn't anything about his physical appearance that we would even desire him. He came from a nobody... Um, you know, uh, he came from a, a kingly tribe, but he came from a nobody family, right? Mary and Joseph were, were nothing special. He grew up in a town that people understood was kind of a laughing stock. So that he could accomplish this thing. Um, there are many that, that have issues with this passage and want it to mean something that, that I don't believe the scriptures teach in that uh, there are some who want us to believe that Jesus emptied himself of everything divine and simply became 100% a man and nothing more. And again, that becomes problematic um, because when Jesus said things like, I and the Father are one, he didn't say, I and the Father used to be one. Um, or that before Abraham was, I used to be. He says, present tense, I am. Um, and he continued to do God things like knowing the thoughts of those when he was here with right. the paralytic. Yeah. Knowing they were reasoning of themselves, da, 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 he says, boom. Yes. That's and not a 100% man thing. That's right, man thing. That's right. Um, yes, he, he demonstrates his power through miracles. Now, some would say, well, so did Elisha, so did Elijah. But there, there is a level to the power that D- Jesus demonstrates that is never seen in any of the other prophets, right? Um, did I see it? Yes. I just was thinking to the fact that he, he started out as a baby, and I know I want to go back to being a baby. <laughs> and he had so much more power than that to go back and be reliant, I mean... I don't know what he could have done as a baby if he wanted to, but and he started as a baby, had to work through that. He had to be in submission to his parents yeah. because of what he himself Right. Yeah, and I'm not going to claim to 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 know how that all worked. Like, how, how does one be both God, 100% God and 100% man? I, I don't know. But the, the best that I can describe it is... When it's a flawed parallel, but we're trying to get our brains to understand God and how He could put Himself in a vessel like a, a human body. But when when I go to work and do my job, so I'm a filmmaker, I don't stop being all of the other elements of my personality, right? 
It's not like, okay, now I'm a father, but later on I'm going to stop being a father and be a filmmaker. And after that, I'm going to stop being a filmmaker and I'm going to be a husband. No. We understand that, that we can be multiple parts of ourselves at the same time. How that manifested itself, I, I'm not going to claim to know perfectly. There were elements where Jesus submitted himself to the Father, right? And he said, I only speak as the Father directs me. He, he did say that when he would come back a second time and, and destruction would happen, he didn't know when that would be, but only the Father did. So I, I don't know how that all works. But what the scriptures teach us and what this passage teach us is that he had the power to choose not to do this. And he had every right as the one who holds all of creation together to say, I don't want to do that. I don't have to do that. But he didn't. And so he chose to empty himself of any claim or right or privilege. Um, he didn't give up his divinity, but as one commentator said, he gave up his divine privileges and chose to set those aside to do what God told him he must do. In fact, he points that out uh, as uh, as he's nearing the cross. He reminds his disciples, don't you think that I could call to my father? And, and I have the authority to request, you know, legions of angels to come and rescue me, but I'm choosing not to, because this is how, how it's supposed to happen. David? Yeah, I think one of the, the big characteristics of God that he gave up for a time, God is not limited by time and space. I mean, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. But yet Jesus, when he took on a fleshly body, was limited to a time and space. Uh, that's that's a big change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what lengths was Jesus willing to go to demonstrate his obedience? What does the What does the passage here say? He was willing to obey up until what point? To the yeah. point of death, even death on a cross. Right. Was there a line farther that he could have taken his obedience? He, he, he took it to the, to the very edge of what, what was possible. Farther than I think any of us would ever be willing to go or could go. But how should that mindset of Christ's impact our approach to God's instruction? What are we meant to learn as we are supposed to have this mind in us as it was in Christ? He was willing to obey to the very end. What should that do to our mindset when we are called to obey? I'm, I'm reminded of Matthew 16, 24, where we're told to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Right. Uh, the, the, the same idea is in those words. Right. You know, I was having a conversation with one of our kids today and encouraging, encouraging them to make the right choice. And they said, it's hard. <laughs> and I said, I know. I know. It's it's not supposed to be easy. Sometimes it's easier than at other times, but usually to do what's right and to, and and to to obey is hard. 
But Jesus' obedience, there, there was no point where Jesus was going to say, look, I'll obey up until here, but you, you can't expect anything past that. No, G- Jesus was willing to go to the very end, and so should we. Um, he gave up far more than we could ever give up. Right. And so that should be quite the motivation right. to give up what little we really have compared to what he had. Right, because, let's be honest, he had everything. All things had been given into his hands, right? He gave up everything. We give up, what What do we give up? I mean, sometimes we have to give up our jobs. Sometimes we have to give up convenience. Sometimes we have to give up family members. So, and that's hard. We're not going to deny that that's, that's hard, but when you stack it up against what Jesus was willing to give up, we, we really have no room to complain. I also want to note, and this has come up many times both in Ephesians and Philippians, that never once did Jesus appeal to his rights as an excuse for disobedience. He didn't say, I demand justice. This is unjust. I have rights as a blah, blah, blah. Like, no. You better believe he had rights. He was the son of God, right? His father created the entire planet and all of humanity and everything beyond. He had every right to say, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that. And yet he didn't. He was willing to sacrifice those rights to lay those things down. So shouldn't we be willing to do the same? Um, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, said in 1 Corinthians 6, when he's condemning the Corinthians and saying, look, I hear you guys are taking each other to court. You've got these disagreements that are so public now. You're taking them to ungodly people to settle your disputes. Shouldn't you rather what? Do you remember? Just let yourself and your rights be stripped from you and let yourself be defrauded. Wouldn't that be better? than to make a mockery of God's kingdom and to to shame the name of Christ. It's like a different courtroom. I've noticed that uh, sometimes God's economy is less here, but there's treasures in heaven, so um, what what you may think of as a minus here is an addition there. Right. Is, so our world is kind of nuts, but his, the, way, the way he wants us thinking is in a different courtroom altogether. That's right. Uh, you would give up those things, and he—he's kind of doing that himself, showing you that uh, if you think this is justice, you're being deceived by these temporal court systems. Right, and that shouldn't surprise us, right? We attain eternal life by dying to ourselves. That doesn't—it doesn't make any sense, right? Jesus saved the world by dying on a cross. Like that doesn't make any sense. And so when when the scriptures say, "Look," and Jesus himself said it. If someone compels you to go a mile, say, no way. You can't tell me what to do. No, you go with him too. If someone wants to take your cloak yeah. or take your tunic, you, you give him your cloak. Yeah. If someone slaps you on the cheek, you you turn and let them slap you on the other. It doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. But neither did the Son of God allowing himself to be nailed on a cross. And yet that's that's what we're called to do. So after considering what Christ was willing to give up in order to come to earth, 
what was he given because of his obedience? So he gave up quite a bit, everything. What was he? What was his reward? What was he given? This actually is back to the previous one oh, no. a little bit. Um, in that, it occurred to me last class. <clears throat> it talks about death on a cross. Philippi was a Roman colony, and so the this Roman form of execution, not uniquely, but predominantly Roman form of execution, would have been well known to them. So that would have mm-hmm. hit them harder than you know other demographics, perhaps. I mean, the, the right. equivalent would almost be like stoning for the Jews and the cross for the Romans, but not exactly. But right, and this is pure speculation, but it wouldn't have been out of the realm of possibility to assume that someone in that town or their father had been responsible for crucifying someone at some point. These were a generation removed, mm-hmm. veteran Roman soldiers, right? And so for them to be told that the Savior of the world was willing to let that happen to him so that everyone could be forgiven of their sins uh, should have should have had an impact. So what was Christ given? What was the reward for his suffering? Highly exalted and given a name above every name. And given that name, and that name would do what for Jesus? What would what would be in verse ten? What would be the result of bearing that name? Every name would bow to him every time they confess. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And I don't know exactly why it's separated in those three. I think it just means everyone and everything, right? And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He goes through all of that and is given a name. Does that seem does that seem like a fair trade? Like what what's in a name? Why why is that so important? What's the name? Just, for me it's just more important to think he gave up his title, which was God of the universe mm-hmm. to make himself nothing, to serve others, to give up every freedom and liberty, to die. But then his reward is he's restored to his title. And everyone recognizes it. He doesn't have to do that for himself. God does it for him. Right. Just like we're called to do. Right. Now look, this is a rabbit hole that you can spend quite a bit of time, and I spent too much on the internet trying to figure out, like, so what's the name? How do you spell it? What language is it? And like, Oh, that's a long... Yeah, uh, yeah I, you and I could probably have conversations. That's not the point here. Because let's be real. Any commentator that wants us to, to tell us the name and they write it in English just makes me chuckle a little bit. Like... The point here is that he is given a name and given a title, and with that name carries authority and power, literal power, so that in the culmination of all things, everyone will hear that name, see that person, and bow before him. Um, The name of God... Um, has has had great significance throughout Scripture. Um, as early as Genesis 4, it, it specifically talks about that that was when people began calling on the name 
of the Lord. And man, there's this there's this thread that we just don't have time to trace, but it's it's brilliant. It's amazing. Um, God calls his people, his chosen people, and he regularly refers to them as those who are called by his name. Right? So he's chosen them and he's given on them a special place because his name has been put on them. When they go into the land of Israel and uh, eventually a temple is, is built, actually, I'm sorry, prior to that, the tabernacle, that's where God says he'll allow his name to dwell and then allows Solomon, uh, with the help of David, to build the structure where he says he will put his name. And then in the New Testament, it is that name, Acts 2 does this, uh, this brilliant thing where, again, it proves the divinity of Jesus, where a, a verse used back in Joel saying that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and Peter says that name is Jesus, right? And that's the name under heaven in which we will be saved. Um, it's, a, it's a thicker thread through the scriptures, and it's... it's um, it's brilliantly done. Yes, David. Yeah, when you think about what he did, what he got, Savior, prior to that, he wasn't the Savior. And as a result of doing this, he became the Savior. So, yeah. That, and, you know, you just touched on that. Yes. And I, I think. That's the one thing I can kind of hone in on that he got afterwards that he didn't have before. Yes. Yeah, so Leanne, I, I agree with, with your point to to a degree, but it's it's not so much that he returned to the status that he be, began with, but David, you make a great point, that he returned not simply as, as a co-creator, right, but as a redeemer now, as a savior now, as a... Um, as the one who offers forgiveness, uh, the one that, that Peter says in Acts 4, there's actually now no other name in which we can be saved. Um, and I'm sure we could go into a, a discussion, um, Chris, uh, about Revelation and the names given um, and attached to Jesus, the rider on the, right, the white horse in Revelation 19. Um, on his robe and on his thigh, he was given a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's this name that is that is attached to his saints and, and given as protection and carries with it power and salvation and so many other things. None of which would have been possible if Jesus was not willing to take himself to the cross. And so it's that mindset now that he's given this perfect example, look at Jesus and look at how low he was willing to make himself for the good of everyone. Surely we can be unified as the body of Christ without um, selfish ambition. Any other thoughts? I'd love for us to jump into 12 through 18. Cool. Would someone uh, be willing to read that for us? 12 through 18. Mr. Bob, can you do that for us? So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only now, but, I'm sorry, but now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will be, <coughs> I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Okay. So I've just got a few questions. We won't be able to go through this verse by verse. Um, but let's start with maybe this more obvious one. What does he mean? What does work out your own salvation mean here? And what does it not mean? Uh, please provide, if you can, passages to support your answer. Sarah, what do you think? Well, it, it doesn't mean... Figure out a plan by which you can save yourself from the sins that you've committed, even though you're, you know, if you you sacrifice three goats on Sunday and four bulls on Monday and figure out all these convolutions. It doesn't mean that. Yes. So I thought I'd go with the easy answer. Yeah. So it doesn't mean what you could understand it to mean if you took that single sentence and read it all by itself. Which we, ha- we, we tend to do sometimes with the Bible. We've, we've been reading these first couple of chapters. And based on the context, it does not mean you figure it out and I'll figure it out. And what works for you is fine. What works for me is fine. God really doesn't care. We'll just work it out. As long as you're doing it with fear and trembling. So what does it mean? So God has already... Determine the works that we should do, and I'll refer to uh, John six twenty eight and twenty nine. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered, "This is the work of God that you believe in Him and be sent." So there's a starting point. There's a starting point. Yep. Uh, David and then Boyd. Yeah. Verse thirteen really kind of points us to that. Says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, doing what God wants us to do, what He's directed us to do, is how we work out our own salvation. Yeah, and and we've got to be careful with this passage because, again, uh, Philippians two is um, is a breeding ground for Calvinism. There are many sections here where people will use specifically verse 13 to simply say, we have no part in it. We just need to let, like God's going to do with us what he's going to do with us. And we just got to, we just got to ride that, that chariot on, onto heaven because he's already, Ephesians 1, predestined us. And so we don't really have a choice in this matter. None of that works. Again, if you keep reading or if you've read the sections before. Right? Because if God's working in me and I don't have control of it, it doesn't really matter because I've already been predestined, verse 14 would be superfluous. Why would he encourage people not to do things? Or, you know, earlier in chapter 2, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Why is he telling them 
how to live and what not to do and what to do if it doesn't really matter. God's going to carry us all the way into heaven. Um, there's, a, there's an aside. There, there's a quote uh, that I got from a blog, uh, from the Radically Christian blog. It, it's a longer chunk, um, but I want to go ahead and read it. But I think before that, boy, did you have your hand up? Well, uh, I, I think all of this goes back to the uh, uh, the fact that Paul has has just written about Jesus in verse thir- in verse twelve. He says, "So then, my beloved." I mean, you're, he's looking back to the fact that Jesus emptied himself, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I, I, I think included in all of this for us. Uh, an individual personal relationship with God is a part of all of this. It's allowing, it, it is making up our minds to uh, follow God's instructions and do what He tells us to do, humbly right. and uh, obediently. Right. Right. Um, I think uh, sometimes we quote this when we're talking about like um, trying to decide to decide what actually is uh, God's will for us um, when we're trying to decide if we're going to to do this or that uh, um, and these people say this and these people say that well you need to work out your own salvation um, and I'm not I'm not convinced that maybe somebody has uh, a better perspective on this but I'm not convinced that that's what this is meant to, to describe either uh, this idea of well you know uh, Berean Jitsu, mm-hmm. um, the the idea that you you need to study and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Certainly, that's a biblical idea, but I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced that's what he means in this passage. Yeah, I agree, Bob. Well, it seems like to me uh, in twelve a he, if you read the verse real quick, he says, "So then, my beloved," and then he, he sets. He sets the foundation stone right there. Just as you have always obeyed, stop, and then say, whether I'm with you or not. Okay, because that's what he's saying. Then he says, just as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation. He, he's talking about obeying and subjecting ourselves to the Lord. Right. Uh, and just continuing in that. With 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 a with a look to and a view of salvation, right? And again, it's it's super easy to do if we take a portion of that and read it, read it as its own sentence. But the, when we're confused about something in the Bible, read around it and around it and around it, and it usually will clarify itself. Right? The fact that obedience is mentioned in verse twelve after we've just been given an exceptional example of obedience cannot possibly be that suddenly he's saying, whatever you do is fine, whatever you do is fine, it's all fine, just figure it out yourselves. Like, if that really were Paul's position, why would he write letters to the churches at all? Um, real quick, uh, I think Ryan's been holding this for a while. Um, the, the NET has an interesting reading verse 13. Uh, it says, For the one bringing forth in you the desire and the effort, then in parentheses, for the sake of his good pleasure, is God. Um, and the New Century Version is pretty similar, maybe a little bit simpler language, but it says, because God is working in you to help you want to do and be able to do what pleases him. Hmm. So it's not just that God is 
working through us to help us uh, you know, make the right choices. He certainly is, but he's also working on our hearts and changing what we want, who we are. Yeah, so that we want to. We want to obey him, absolutely. Real quick, Luke, and then... No. Yeah, I, I think Bob's point was... I think he's just saying, keep on keeping on. And the reason he has to tell them that is because of all the problems that they're dealing with. In 128, he refers yes. to their opponents. He later talks about uh, suffering because of encountering these conflicts, verse 30. So I think that's what he's talking about. It's like, you guys need to just keep on, keep on doing what you're doing. You're already obeying. It's going to get tough. Keep doing it. Yeah. So real quick... Um, and I don't know if I'll read the whole thing, but that first sentence, the Greek word translated work out means to work in order to bring something to completion oh, or fulfillment. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. So it doesn't mean figure it out. It means work at it. Work at it because you, you want to complete this and fulfill this. So work at it until you do, which goes along with obedience, which goes along with, with what we've been talking about. Um, I'd be happy to, to provide this full quote. We just don't quite have time. Um, yeah, let's, let's do, let's do this. So when some, here at the end, so when we say to someone, well, you have to work out your own salvation and I have to work out mine, we are saying something completely different than what Paul was saying. We work our salvation collectively by being of one mind and humbly submitting to one another. This is not something that can be done individually. It can only be done in the context of a church family. He made the point here that it makes no sense for Paul to have spent the last chapter talking about you, as in you all, to suddenly go, you. He turns the collective into an individual. No, he's still talking collectively, which, so for those who want to make this, you figured out and you figured out that doesn't work. He's still talking about the group. And so as a group, you Philippians, work at it. Keep working hard and achieve this thing. Um, as you have already demonstrated yourself to do. Was that a second bell? Right, Miss uh, Karen? Um, you know, he's, he's talking about them all working together, and he's saying whether I'm part of that or whether I'm not there, God is working in you. Mm-hmm. So God is there. God is working with you. Um, so whether, whether I'm here or not, God is the one that right. you need in your midst. Yeah, be people of integrity, whether people are watching or not. Um, God's watching. Yes, Sarah. And, and part of it seems to be this this working out is the warning, don't lose your salvation over, you know, being selfish about who gets to bring green bean casserole to the pigeon. I, I, I don't know. Um, it's, I've never honestly argued about that. No. You should. No, I'm kidding. Who did sign up for it? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but I mean that even that something like that should not cause a rift between um, the brethren and in those issues. You have to continue to yeah. make it complete. And not- yeah, and and honestly, you transition us into verse fourteen. Well, you know, do this, work together, work at it, but don't grumble or or complain or bicker with each other while you're doing it because that's that's going to defeat the purpose um the idea is to do this without grumbling or questioning so mine says questioning some say disputing or arguing um 
You're supposed to be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We will never be successful in exposing the darkness if we act like the darkness does in our attempt to expose it. It it doesn't make sense. The world is the one that's biting at each other and devouring each other and and bickering with each other and, and complaining and questioning and disputing. We're supposed to be bringing something different, something that that brings light to expose their darkness. And so when God's people get together to accomplish this mission, to work at it, um, we should be doing it very differently than the world does theirs. Um, Honestly, hypocrisy is one of the most common charges brought against God's people. Our manner of life, and especially as it pertains to bringing light to this dark world, should be described, as he does here, as blameless and innocent. So we we should be presenting God's word in, in a loving kind of way, in a humble kind of way, acknowledging that we are not faultless. We are broken people that have been pieced back together through God's grace and mercy and love, and we're simply offering that invitation to to others. But we're supposed to do it in such a way so that we can be presented as without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I'm sorry I didn't get to all the hands. Uh, We'll start in verse 16, and uh, we will finish chapter 2 on Sunday for you there. Thank you all.